friends. Welcome to the webinar. I am Rick Thomas. I'm so glad that you are here. The title of this webinar is How to Persevere When Life Turns You Upside Down. I'm talking about discouragement. This is something that we all experience. Some of you are going through that right now. You have been sailing along and you started to tilt a little bit and after a while you find yourself upside down and that's where you are. For the rest of you, well, you have been there and so you understand perfectly what it's like and we're all aware that, well, we'll be there in the future too. It's just a part of what it's like to live in a fallen world. And so I want to talk about discouragement or as I've titled this webinar, how to persevere when life turns you upside down. Now, if you are turned upside down right now, I trust you will benefit from this webinar that you will, uh, as you go through the slides, that you'll be able to apply many of these ideas practically to your life right now. But I know for some of you that discouragement can lead to deeper struggles like despair and despondency. And because of that, you need someone to come alongside you to help you. And so for those of you who are doing well now, may you not only benefit from this webinar, but may the Lord give you the insight, wisdom, the courage that you need to go to your friend because you have somebody in your world that needs an encouraging word. They need a friend to walk alongside them down the path uh, to help right the ship or to right them so that they can move along in the way that they should with the Lord. Lord, And I trust that you will be that friend to that individual. So let's talk about it, how to persevere when life turns you upside down. Now, the big word to summarize the webinar is discouragement, is a common reality for all of us. And what I want to do in this webinar is I want to divide it into two parts. And so in the first part, I want to talk in, I trust, a comprehensive way about discouragement. I want to analyze it. I want to diagnose it so that you can understand. Using Paul's template in Ephesians 4 to put off the old person and to put on a new person that looks like Christ. Well, in order to put off, you need to understand what it is. What is happening to you? What are some of the choices that you are making? Why are you in this situation as it is? Well, I want to talk about discouragement. And then in the second part of the webinar, I want to give you some practical help. I want to bring some solutions, some advice. I want to give you some handles that you can hold on to to move down that path. And so two parts, discouragement and its solution. And so in this first part, diagnosing, analyzing, understanding what discouragement is so that you can persevere well in a fallen world, it's important to understand the conditions of discouragement. And there are three conditions that are common to all of us. The first condition, a prerequisite for discouragement, is to be born in Adam. We are Adamic people. We're normal, meaning we are human Being cut from the Adamic cloth means that we are fallen human beings. The Bible word for this is total depravity, which means that we are broken through and through, that there is no aspect of our organic selves, our physicality, our bodies, and there is no aspect of our non-organic selves, our, our souls, 
that is beyond corruption. We are totally corrupt through and through, broken through and through. Now, that doesn't mean that we are as evil as we possibly can be. None of us are living to the fullest potentials of what uh, total depravity could be. But we are broken, and we do need a redeemer. Now, when I talk about being born in Adam, being Adamic, and using the word total depravity, I like to also say we're totally depraved, but we are uniquely fallen. This is a important addition in my mind because none of us live out our depravity the same way. We are uniquely fallen. And so when you get inside of a family, let's say with a, a brother and sister, siblings, that they do not live out their fallen condition the same way. They have strengths and weaknesses and propensities and proclivities, and they have temptations that are different from each other. The same for a husband and wife. Uh, they don't live out their fallenness the same way. Their humanity, what it means to be Adamic, is different for, for each one of them, whether it's a husband and wife, parent to child, sibling to sibling, friend to friend, church member to church member. We live it out differently. Now, the importance of this and the reason I like to frame it this way is because there can be a temptation with some people to self-righteously look down on others who struggle differently from the way that they do. And we don't want to do that. I mean, it could sound like this. I wish I had their problems. I mean, if I could just live with their problems for a day, it would be fantastic. And we don't want to do that because not only is it ignorant and is it self-righteous, but it's a lack of understanding of the human condition. And more importantly, it's a lack of understanding of what God is doing in that individual's life. God is writing their narrative, not your narrative. And he's writing their narrative a particular way, a unique way. They are uniquely fallen. They need unique grace. They have a special relationship with the Lord, and he wants to do something unique in their lives. Therefore, he is scripting their lives in a particular way. You don't have their problems. You have yours. Perhaps they could look at you in a similar way and say, wow, if I could just be you for a day. And so it's important when we look at each other, address one another, come alongside each other, that we recognize that we aren't the same. And what may be easy for you is complicated for the next person. And so being born in Adam, I, again, I like to frame it as we are totally depraved through and through. No aspect of our being is outside of corruption. We are totally corrupt but we or and we are uniquely fallen and that is a good way to think about your brother or sister and then the second condition for discouragement is that we are finite we are human number one born in adam we are finite number two meaning we cannot manage our world we did not receive all the omnis at birth i am not omniscient know everything. I do not know everything. I am not omnipotent. I have all the power that there is or that can be had. I'm not omnipotent. I am not omnipresent. I can't be everywhere all the time, every day. I can only be in one place, one spot, one space at one time. Only God is omni. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is everywhere at all times. And so, 
A condition for discouragement is being finite, recognizing that we can't manage our world and there are temptations in us to want to manage our world and sometimes we reach for, we lunge for self-reliant means to try to take control of our universe so that we can work ourselves out of discouragement and that is a trap that I'll talk about in just a moment. We were never intended to manage our world. We were always intended to reach for something higher, someone more fabulous than we are, and his name is Christ. And so being finite, unable to manage our world, is a condition for discouragement. And then the third condition is fallenness. And so we are human, totally depraved, uniquely fallen. We are finite, we cannot manage our world, and then we are fallen, which means sin is coming and sin is going. We are doing it and it is being done to us. We not only cannot manage our world, but we cannot manage other people. And so we live elbow to elbow with others, elbowing our way through life, and sometimes some people annoy us. They get under our skin. Other times they do things that are truly harmful to us, and we can do similarly to them also, and it's important to understand that. It's not just them, but it is all of us. And so these are the three conditions for discouragement, and because these conditions are daily, they're always about us, always in us. Discouragement is ever-present and ready, always lurching at the door. And if it's left unchecked, it can create a spiraling effect in our lives that can take us down into some deep places. And so I want to talk about the downward spiral of discouragement when it's left unchecked. Now, what I mean by left unchecked is that there are disappointments in our life that we know how to work through. And I trust that you have a growing list of disappointments that you can just check off easily because your Christian maturity has given you the means and mechanisms to be able to do that. Because you can't get away from disappointment, then our best option is to be able to check it off to where we're not managed by the disappointments that come to us. And that's why I say I hope you have a growing list of disappointments that you can just check off. Some of the means and mechanisms that you have, for example, you can overlook some things. You're married to that person who does that thing again that used to annoy you to no end. But you have matured. You you all have worked through it. And so when your spouse does that thing again, you check it off and you, you move on, praise God. Or you have a parent that is irresponsible one more time and, and the kid is struggling with it. But because of their Christian maturity, they're able to engage what the parent is doing and, and you can walk through repentance. You are a repentive family. And so whether you overlook it or whether repentance is operative in your lives, you can check, check off that disappointment and you don't head down that downward spiral. But when disappointment is left unchecked, when your adamicness just begins to overwhelm you, your total depravity and unique fallenness, or your finiteness where you cannot manage your world and you feel it just 
crashing in on you, or perhaps because of your humanity and there's sin happening, going and coming, and there are things that really are bothering you and you don't feel like you can even work through those, then that disappointment, if you're not careful, will turn into discouragement. And this is the downward spiral. Discouragement sounds heavier. It just seems like a bigger word. It feels heavier when it's happening to you. And so it can be a little disappointment or multiple disappointments that left unchecked and it begins to fester inside your soul and it it turns into discouragement and then it continues to metastasize in you and eventually it can lead to depression. And depression is a even heavier word. It it sounds like, it feels like what it looks like, depression, where the weight of the world is just pressing you through the earth. It is so heavy. Now you're in a place of depression. We're talking about the downward spiral. And then the fourth stop of the train is despair. Or maybe despondency is a good way to, to talk about it. The thing that's missing here is hope. It's the person who feels hopeless. It's hopeless. It's a condition of of hopelessness. And this is what happens when a disappointment is unchecked. You don't have the means or the mechanism to check it off. You go from a disappointment to a discouragement to depression to despair and despondency. And so what is discouragement? Well, the big thing about discouragement is that it's never the first step. There is always a precursor. There's always a trigger. There's always an initiating event. Something is going on. Something happens to you or something is going on inside of you. And because you're unable to resolve what's happening to you or what's going on inside of you, discouragement ensues. It could be the aftermath, discouragement could be the aftermath of a disappointment as I was talking about in that downward spiral. Discouragement could be because of an unchanging situation. It wasn't something that you've done, but it's something that happened to you and you cannot change it. And when those things are in play, well, discouragement will happen to you and it doesn't have to be bad. It doesn't have to be life-altering. You don't have to stay in that place. Again, you can work through it. Maybe you need a friend to help you to walk through it because it's just that heavy. But discouragement is never the first step. It could be the accumulative effect of several disappointments. They could be unrelated disappointments. You're having a bad day, a bad week, bad month, bad year, bad season, bad life. Sometimes the accumulative effect of disappointments, they just come from anywhere or everywhere, like spinning plates, and you don't know how to work through them. And so discouragement is never the first step. Let me give you an illustration of what I am talking about, and I will use guilt. I will use guilt as the precursor or, or the triggering that leads a person to discouragement. Let's say that you have a person who just struggles with guilt. Maybe they came from an authoritarian family culture where they were just criticized and yelled at and condemned all of their childhood, and it's just a massive adverse shaping influence to where they just feel 
guilty even when it should not be true from a biblical sense, but it's true from for them for a practical sense, and they're not able to work through this. They don't know how to work through this. And so this disappointment, this daily disappointment of feeling guilty leads to discouragement. Now, here's the trap. If they don't know how to work through it, there is a strong chance that they will go or reach to false solutions, a way to feel better about themselves, which is not a solution at all. And there's the the three-linked process of the downward spiral. You have a triggering effect or a precursor. You don't know how to work through it, and so it discourages your soul, and you want some kind of relief or release or escape, and so you reach for a false solution, and now you're in that that downward spiral, and it can lead to the depths of despair and despondency. Here's a few more precursors or triggering effects. Shame, jealousy, self-pity, unmet desires, and fear. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. You can list other things that disappoint you, other conditions that disappoint you. You could also insert people here, people who disappoint you. And that would fall under what, let's say, unmet desires. A person doesn't meet your expectations. And if you don't get a hold of that, that disappointment can lead to discouragement. And you may reach for a false solution, which will only further enslave you to the discouragement that you have. And if you're not careful, you will find yourself turned upside down. Now, what you want to do is you want to get to the bottom of it all. You have to be able to identify the true cause of what is going on inside of you because the restoration process begins by identifying the source. And the source is never outside of you. The source is always inside of you. God gives us everything that we need for life and godliness, and there is no temptation that should overtake us, that should turn us upside down and keep us in an upside down condition. We do have the ability, ability, we have the power within us to persevere through all kinds of difficulties and discouragements, but in order to persevere, And in order to right the ship, we have to identify the causation, the source. And so I want to give you a brief case study to walk through how to excavate to get to the bottom of it all, the bottom of the discouragement. And so I'll use my friend Biff, the fictional my fictional friend, and a fictional case study. And let's say that Biff just lost his job, that his company downsized and it was out of the blue he had no idea he he goes in gainfully employed one day and he leaves in the afternoon where he's unemployed and he's unsure about his future he's not sure what just happened to him why it happened to him and he is discouraged and he doesn't have the means or the mechanisms to work through it and so there is the triggering effect it leads to discouragement And because he's a self-reliant creature, he reaches for 
he reaches for false solutions. And so here's the case study, and you want to help him, and so you need to excavate, get underneath the layers until you get to the bottom of it all. And so you knock on Biff's door and walk into his home, and he is laying on his couch, and he is binge-watching television, or he's binge-streaming or surfing the internet, or, or he's on his favorite mobile, mobile device streaming, and he's been doing this for hours. That's layer number one. That's the upper layer. It doesn't get to the bottom, and so he's with his two-liter and his bag of chips, and you say, Biff, what are you doing? I'm binge-watching. Well, that's kind of obvious, but you want to get him to talk through it with you, And so now you begin your excavation project because you want to get to root cause. And so as you get underneath what he's doing behaviorally, binge watching in this illustration, you find out that he's discouraged. Well, why are you doing that? And then he tells you the story of losing his job and the downsizing, and you see that he is discouraged. But discouragement is not the bottom of it all. It is a symptom of a deeper problem, just like binge-watching is. Binge-watching is his self-reliant effort to dig himself out of the hole. And of course, as you know, it won't work. And so as you continue your excavation project, you realize that there is a fear that's riding underneath his discouragement. He is afraid of not being able to pay his bills. He is afraid of not being able to find another job. He's middle age. He's, he's afraid that of starting a new career, possibly, or, or not being able to make a lateral move into the same career that he's had. He's afraid of what other people will think about him, going to his church meeting on Sunday morning and, and telling them that he lost his job. He feels like a failure because he can't hold his job. And so there are competing fears that are hostile to him and antagonizing his soul. And because of this fear, it has led to discouragement. And again, his self-reliant means of working through it is binge-watching, which is not a solution at all. But his fear is not the bottom of it all. And so you want to do more excavation, and so you keep digging, and you find out that there is a functional unbelief operating in his soul. Now, on one hand, this sounds simplistic, and it is. And it's important for us to understand that our problems are not that complicated, If they were that complicated, we would have to be rocket scientists in order to work through our unique sanctification processes. But God did not design it that way. And so there is a simplicity to what is going on in our lives and the causes of of why these things are happening. But we don't want to communicate these things in a dismissive in a dismissive, simplistic way by slapping a bumper sticker on Biff and just saying, well, you just need to trust God because at the bottom of it all, you are uh, functioning like an atheist. You are practically unbelieving, not trusting God. We don't want to throw the trust God uh, mantra out there and just move on. So even though identifying the root of it all is not that difficult, We want to make sure that we are careful in helping a person to work through it because understanding it can be easy, 
is much easier than working through it. And so you, in order for Biff to experience restoration, you do the proper excavation work. You lead him to a place of understanding, which is the more difficult part to get him to understand. And then you begin to construct a process to lead him out so that he can persevere when life is trying to turn him upside down. And one of the things that you will have to guard him against which he is doing in my fictional case study, is the discouragement trap. And when I say the discouragement trap, I'm talking about the trap of self-reliance. That is our temptation. Whenever we find ourselves in a hole and we're flipped upside down, our first instinctive, adamic response is to dig ourselves out of that hole under our own strength and our own power. This is called self-reliance. And this is exactly what Adam and Eve did after they chose to unbelieve in Genesis 3.6 and following. They had a triggering effect. They felt a sense of shame. And that sense of shame was operative and potent inside of them. And rather than going back to trusting God who can remove all of our shame, they chose a self-reliant means to work through their problem. And so they covered themselves in fig leaves. They began to run from God. They began to blame each other for the problem. And the issues continue to accumulate, and there you find yourself in a downward spiral. And so when you are in the place of discouragement, you want to think through the means and mechanisms that you are implementing to get out of this discouragement. And you have to understand that there is a trap in front of you and you can easily step into it. And that trap is self-reliance because that is who we are in Adam. The self-reliant soul could say something like, well, I've done something to get myself into this mess, therefore I must do something to get out of it. If that is our first impulse, we're going to complicate our problem. There is something else we must do before we start working the issue. We need to recalibrate our minds. We need to think in a God-centered way. Because if we don't, we're going to reach for self-help ideas and principles and seven habits for effective people. We're going to look for behavioral changes. And in Biff's illustration, his first recourse was to lay down on the couch and jump on uh, Facebook or TikTok and to spend the next several hours just getting lost in, in this escape where he's looking for relief, but it is not a solution. And that's the difference between self-reliant efforts. They will give you relief, but they will not give you redemption. They will not give you long-term sustaining resolution. If your despair or discouragement leads you instinctively and initially to principles and habits and looking for mechanisms for behavioral changes, then you're not learning the primary purpose of your problems. 
You remember when I was saying that we are totally depraved and uniquely fallen, and we don't want to judge a person who is uniquely fallen, different from us, because God is writing a unique story in that person's life. Therefore, rather than leaning into self-sufficiency, we want to lean into a God-centered mindset. The God-centered soul thinks differently from the self-reliant soul. The God-centered soul has a perspective, and they realize that their discouragement is God's mercy to them. Something is happening to them. They are good sovereignists, and they know that God is operative and active in their lives, that he hasn't left them, but he is there. It's like what we read in Genesis 39, verse 2, the story of Joseph. It says that God was with Joseph, and God is with us too, and the God-centered person has a God-centered perspective. And though he is discouraged, he knows that God's mercy is operative, and so it instinctively leads him to start depending less on himself and looking for learning how to have a greater reliance on God. And so as you do your excavation work, you get to the bottom of it all, and you find out that there is there's some areas in the individual's life where their belief needs to be recalibrated. And this is the tension that we find in Mark 9, where the man was talking to the Lord, and he said, I believe but Lord, help my unbelief, and isn't that who we are? We believe. We have been regenerated. I trust that has happened to you, that God has saved you. You are born again. If you're not and would like to know how to become a Christian, I would appeal to you to come to our ministry and, and let us walk you through that process or uh, go to your pastor or find someone who you know is a believer and ask them to show you how to become one so that you can believe. But after you believe, after you become born again, when it comes to living practically in this world, sometimes we can act as functional atheists, where our belief in God, our trust in God, though it is real and we are seated in heavenly places and we're going to rejoice like what we see in Revelation 5 as we worship him who sits upon the throne, the lamb who was slain for us, even though we are assured of all of those things, we can have pockets of unbelief in our life Thus, this statement here, I believe, Lord, and you genuinely do. Help my unbelief. Two things that are true at the same time, and they seem antithetical, but we know in the practical realities of life, they're not antithetical at all. And so we want to get down to our unbelief so that we can learn how to rely on the one who restores our souls. And so if you find yourself in a place of discouragement, you need your soul restored. But you can't restore your soul. You need someone else to do that for you. And so as we move into the second part of this webinar, I've talked about discouragement from several different perspectives. Now, 
I want to give you those handles that I mentioned earlier that you can hold on to as you move down the path of life. Or for those of you who are coming alongside someone who is flipped upside down, they are a discouraged soul and they're moving down the downward spiral, I want you to be the handles to help them to to right the ship so that they can become right side up and and move well uh, through God's world. And so the first step is to learn how to rely on God, the soul's restorer, and not fall for the temptations of self-reliant efforts to dig yourself out of the hole or to flip yourself right side up. And the way that I want to do that is I want to walk through a very familiar psalm. And one of the reasons I'm using Psalm 23 is because of its familiarity. But when a person is discouraged, it's not that they need new information. We don't need a new tip or trick or book or process. What we need is to go back to the old information that has not lost its value and it has not lost its potency. It's like when you find a quarter in the parking lot and it's been there for 10 years. That quarter is the same value as a brand new quarter that just came, that was just made today. And so you A person who is discouraged doesn't need new information. They need to recalibrate their minds to the old information. And you want to also take the information that they're already familiar with so that they don't have to work so hard to wrestle these truths into their souls. And so Psalm 23 is a perfect passage because it's so familiar, one, and then it's so potent, Two, that you want to wrestle through. Now, in this psalm, David, in his first sentence, his first statement, he just says something that is, it sounds hyperbolic, but he will go on later to prove his point. But he he starts with the hyperbolic statement. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that is the condition for every believer. If you have been born again, the Lord is your shepherd and you shall not want. Now, let me give you a a little devotional series. This is kind of a digression from this webinar, but it's not. You can actually use this devotional series and it will help you with your discouragement. In fact, I would commend it to you. What you can do is you can take this sentence here, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And you can put the accent mark on each word on a different day. You can move the accent mark down the line, down the sentence, and emphasize each word. And as you do that, the entire sentence will have different meanings as you move the accent mark down down the line. Let Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. First, put the accent mark on the first word, the. The. Lord is my shepherd. Not a Lord, not any Lord, but the Lord. And you spend the day just meditating on the Lord, and it will begin to affect your soul. And then the next day, you move the accent mark down the line. And so now you'll act, uh, put the accent mark on Lord. And so it's the Lord 
is my shepherd, and you begin to unpack what the word Lord means in this sentence and, and the power and the comfort that it brings to your soul. The Lord is my shepherd. And then the next day, you move the accent mark one step further, and it says the Lord is present tense right now. I mean, not yesterday, not tomorrow. That brings its own comfort, of course. But what I need is the Lord right now in my soul shepherding me. And so the Lord is my shepherd. It's not something that I have to wait for. It's not something that has passed me. It is happening right now. And he is my shepherd. And we'll do one more. And so the next day you move the accent mark one more step down the line. The Lord is my shepherd. And now you think about a personal God. God is transcendent, and he is above all, and he pushes beyond anything that we could ever imagine. But God is also imminent, and he is God with us, and he tabernacles with me, and he is my shepherd, and he is in me, and you focus on the personableness of God. And you continue to move down this sentence, just this one sentence, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And you do that in a devotional series, and it can bring some transformative effect in your soul. I said this is a slight digression from the webinar, but it's not really because this is what you want. You want to, you want to solve the riddle of the statement in Mark 9, Lord, I believe, help my own belief. And if you go through that little devotional series that I just laid out for you, it will help your functional atheism. It will help your practical unbelief to where you can become a believing believer, where you're, you're, you're assuredly saved. You are a believer. And then in your sanctification, these pockets of unbelief will begin to vaporize. And so what David is doing here is he is not just recalibrating his own belief by reminding himself of old truths that he already knows as a sheep, but he just goes into this excessive bragathon where he's telling everybody else, you, you not only want to tell yourself how good and great God is, but you want to also let others know, and that's what Psalm 23 is doing. And, and notice also that the emphasis of Psalm 23 is on work. If you want to get over your discouragement, you have to work to do it. But the work that is done is not primarily your work. It's what God has done, and it's what God is doing. And so the focus, the, the primary focus is on what God does, not what you do. You, you remember, I was, I was talking about self-reliance. You remember Biff, the self-sufficient one, lying on the couch, doing the work to dig himself out of unbelief? He wasn't. He was digging the hole. It was getting deeper and deeper. He was in the downward spiral because he was reaching for false solutions, doing the work. He shouldn't be doing the work primarily. God is the one that does the work. And so David, in this massive bragathon, in this poem, he is telling the other sheep in the corral why the Lord is his shepherd and why he does not want. And so he begins in verse 
verse 2 to explain himself, and he says that he makes me to lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside the still waters. David is saying that I am an insecure, broken, uniquely fallen individual who cannot manage my world, and I live with other people elbow to elbow, and I am sinning against them, and they are sinning against me, and I am a timid, insecure sheep, and so I need someone to superintend over me. I need someone to make me to lie down, and I need someone to lead me beside these calm waters so that I can drink. But more than that, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He is with me. As I was saying earlier, God was with Joseph in Genesis 39, verse number 2. And David is saying, he is with me when I walk through this deep valley, and when I feel flipped over because I am, when my soul is in turmoil, God is with me and he comforts me. He prepares a table before me, and so when I am hungry and the summer heat is bearing down and the vegetation is burning up, he leads me up to a mountain, to a mesa, to a tabletop area, and he prepares that mesa so that I can go out onto it and I can feed myself. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil, and as you know, as you finish the psalm, he gives me incredible confidence that he will be with me all the days of my life. Mercy and goodness will be with me, and I will be with him, and this is why I brag. And so when you get to the bottom of it all, of a person's discouragement, you will find a practical, functional aspect of unbelief operative in their minds, and before you before you give them a task list, before you give them principles and and seven habits for effective people or behavioral modifying changes, you have to recalibrate. God is working. God is in their mess. God is being merciful to them by writing this discouragement into their script. And what you will find is that the sheep will start taking on the attitude of David. And this is part of the cure, by the way, being a grateful sheep. A grateful sheep is 180 degrees different from the discouraged sheep. If the good shepherd has saved me from darkness and death, then I have bragging rights. Lord, I believe you have regenerated me. You have reached into the muck of, of my sin, and you have lifted me out, and you have placed me on a rock. You went to death's door. You went into Hades to rescue me. You've gone to great lengths to save me because you are the good shepherd, and I am bragging, I am bragging about you to myself. And I'm bragging about you to all the other sheep as well. The heart of a shepherd-centered sheep is gratitude. The sheep can't stop talking about all the good shepherd gives to him. We need someone who is more fabulous than we are. We need to believe in someone who is stronger than 
Our attitudes will rise and fall on our best relationship. And if the only person that Biff can trust is himself, then his attitude will rise and fall on his ability to perform. Well, in this case, his discouragement has overwhelmed him and it has flipped him upside down. But because he is his best relationship, he can only depend upon himself to rescue himself from his troubles. No, Biff needs someone more fabulous than he is. He needs to build a stronger relational dependency. Christ is higher than we are. Christ is better than we are. If we are standing on the construction, if we're standing on the rock that Christ has placed us, then we are depending on someone who is more fabulous than we are, someone who can control what we can't control, someone who will never lose us. We will lose ourselves because we cannot manage our world. We cannot manage the people who are around us. We are totally depraved and uniquely fallen. But Christ is not any of those things. He possesses all of the omnis, and we are in his hand, and nobody can take us out of his hand. And so we need someone more fabulous than us. But then the question comes, based on what you're saying and all the bragging that you're doing, Rick, about how great God is, and he is the soul's restorer, which he is, then what you're saying is we are to do nothing. Well, that is, a, that is an honest question, and so I want to spend just a few minutes walking through this so that you don't swing the pendulum so far from not relying on yourself to doing nothing. No, you don't want to go in either one of those ditches. There, there are some people who have this attitude of let go and let God. There is no place for passivity in God's kingdom work. There's no place for passivity in how we work out our salvation for fear and trembling. But make sure we read the verse that it is written. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God working in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. Therefore, our work flows out of the pre-existing effort and the ongoing work of God. Our obedience flows out of a trust that we did not earn, a faith that we did not work for. Our obedience flows out of what God has done. We are working, we are working from the outflow of what God is doing inside of us. Let me give you a negative illustration of a person who has not grasped this idea. The separated man. A wife, a wife leaves her husband, and the husband goes into discouragement. And his first impulse is to work to do something. And so what does he do? He starts sending her cards at her work. He starts buying flowers. He starts showing up on her doorstep and talking about how wonderful he is and how much he's going to change and how much God has affected him. And he is a new man. Well, 
his wife's not going to believe a word of that, or she shouldn't believe a word of that, because he is relying on himself. He's doing things that he has never done before. He is skipping the most valuable link in the chain of the process of change. And that link in that chain is learning who God is, what God is doing, why God is doing it, recalibrating your mind to God because you haven't been trusting God throughout your marriage. You have been relying on yourself. It's led you to this place to where your wife has left you, and so you're going to continue to rely on yourself by doing man-centered manipulations to get your wife to come back, and she knows it's not genuine. A dating boy will do a similar thing. Now, I'm not intentionally hammering on the men or the boys here. Women will do self-reliant things as well, okay? But I'm just using these as illustrations. And so the dating boy who wants to get the girl, rather than trusting God, rather than being a good sovereigntist, he does a very similar thing that the separated man is now doing. And so he buys her flowers, and he holds the car door open, and he says nice things and and all the things that you do to get a girl. There's an element of manipulation here and not trusting the Lord. And then they get married, and then the girl, who's now the wife, finds out that those things were not genuine. Those were self-reliant efforts to manipulate me so that we could get married. And she goes on with this for a number of years until eventually his manipulations and his way of living and not walking with the Lord and trusting the Lord is just too powerful and evident and strong. And uh, she decides to leave. And so the dating boy becomes a separated man. These are two illustrations of two individuals that are working They're doing stuff, kind of like Biff. He's doing stuff. He's eating potato chips, drinking a two-liter, and he's binge surfing on his favorite social media app. But his work doesn't flow out of trust. And so the first step is to turn ourselves to unabated reliance on God, regardless of what happens in your relationship. And so the dating boy who really wants to marry this girl is going to trust God with no strings attached. I'm going to work. I'm going to work as God works in me, but I'm not going to fall into self-reliant manipulations to get this girl. And so faith has a temptation. And the reason that we don't want to walk in faith and to trust God, despite whatever the end result may be, is because we want a faith that already knows what the end result is going to be. And so if we can engineer the end result, that's why we lean into self-reliance or self-sufficiency. If God told you how things would turn out, your faith would be in the known result and not in God. And that is one of the reasons, maybe the primary reasons, reason we don't want to trust God through the process because we don't know how it's going to turn out. The self-reliant person is different from that. 
He knows what he wants. Whether God wants it or not doesn't matter. He knows what he wants, and so he will construct a plan to get there. And so the separated man is not going to trust God through the process of a broken marriage. What he's going to do is manipulate the process. He doesn't want this open-ended, mysterious uncertainty of how this thing's going to wrap up. And so rather than having faith in God and walking down that mysterious path, he is going to predetermine how this thing is going to end and he's going to manipulate the process to get there and it won't work. And furthermore, to maintain what he wants, he will always have to work to keep it. And this is what his wife knows. Oh, he may win her back with flowers and cards and showing up on her doorstep. But once she comes back, He's not going to live that way because it was just a manipulative effort. It was just a self-reliant effort because he had already created the outcome rather than trusting God through the process because trusting God sounds, it sounds foolish. Trusting God sounds foolish. There's a passage of Scripture that you may be familiar with, and if you're not familiar with it, I would appeal to you to become familiar with it, and that is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. I am not going to read that passage here because it's long. I do have it here on a slide, and so you can read through it. You can stop the webinar at this point and just soak in this passage of Scripture. But the big idea in this passage of Scripture is God is asking us to choose foolishness. He's asking us to choose foolishness because that's what faith sounds like. And that's what Paul is saying. Faith sounds foolish. You see, the Jews seek a sign. The self-reliant man seeks a sign. I want to know what the sign is. Show me, show me the sign way down the road. I'll look at the sign and I'll figure out how to get there. That's not how it works. Greeks seek wisdom. And seeking a sign sounds like wisdom, by the way. But what Paul is giving them is a stumbling block. He is giving them something that is foolish, and that is not what they want. And there, there is a, there's a hidden key in this process, and I want to go back to Psalm 23 uh, to talk about this idea, to wrap up the, the webinar, and, and I want to talk about this foolish process of trusting God and understanding what it means to trust God, but not just to trust Him in a let-go, let-God way, but trust Him the right way, which leads to a right response. And it's really not foolish at all. Uh, the, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And in this passage, in Psalm 23, verse number 3 specifically, David says that God restores my soul. It's the idea behind the title of the webinar, How to Persevere When your life is turned upside down. A person who needs their soul restored, a sheep who needs their soul restored, is a sheep that has capsized. It's a cast sheep is the shepherding term. Why are you cast down, O my soul, David would say at another place. A cast soul is a soul that is, is, is a sheep that is upside down. And they need to be restored. They need to be righted, lifted up, and placed on their feet. And David tells us in this psalm 
how God restores our soul. It's not just a bragathon, but embedded inside this passage, we see how soul restoration happens. And again, it's in verse number three. If you read verse number three in the King James Bible, it will read like he, well, to say it in King James, he restoreth. He restores my soul. But there is a colon there. And, and grammatically, when there is a colon in a sentence, the colon means I'm going to explain what I just said. You see, if David would have said, he restores my soul, we would say, well, okay, amen, he restores my soul. But we would not know how he does that. And so in Psalm 23, verse number three, he says, he restores my soul, and then he explains how he does that. He restores my soul, okay, how? He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. How does God restore? There are two parts to it. There's primary cause and secondary cause, and this is critical that we get this order right. Primary cause is God leads, not self-sufficiency, God reliance, God God leads. He is on point. He is leading. Because when we lead, we become self-sufficient, and we go for the two-liter, the bag of chips, and we binge watch. Or we try to manipulate our wives to come back home. Or we're the dating boy who's trying to manipulate the girl so that we can uh, get her to marry us. But when God leads, it seems foolish. It seems weak. We do not know the end. We don't know how it's going to end. There is mystery here, but I'm going to rely on him. Therefore, God is going to lead. But that does not leave me in a place of passivity. I am not in a position of letting go and letting God. I have a responsibility. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Therefore, in Ephesians 5, 1, and two, it says this, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Because of what God has done in our lives, we want to imitate him. Our obedience flows out of his pre-work in our lives. Because of his pre-existing work in our lives, we want to now walk. God is the primary cause. He gives us trust. He, he gives us faith. He makes us born again. And now we want to walk in love. Obedience flows from faith. Let me give you some illustrations of how this could work. You may not want to forgive a person who has hurt you, whether excuse me, whether that's transactional forgiveness or attitudinal forgiveness. You may not ever be able to transactionally forgive someone because they're not asking, they're not coming to you, they're not seeking your forgiveness. But you can transactionally forgive them where you re, where you release yourself from what they have done to you. But you want to be obedient. It may sound foolish to you. It may sound weak to you to work through the process of attitudinally forgiving them. But you want to be obedient because of your faith in God. You may not want to confess your sin. <clears throat> Excuse me. Another, <clears throat> another illustration. You may not want to confess your sin. It sounds foolish to expose yourself, to be vulnerable. And I'm not talking about being vulnerable to an abuser. I'm talking about a normal <clears throat> situation in a relationship where, where sin, a sin event happens and you're the cause of it and you want to confess. But that sounds foolish. That sounds weak. It is foolish and it is weak. We, we want a sign. We want 
Uh, we want wisdom. No, we, we want to trust God, and so therefore our obedience flows from our faith. You may not want to recon- reconcile with someone, as much as it depends on you, as Paul said in, in Romans twelve eighteen. You may not want to reconcile, but your obedience flows from your faith. And so you do have a responsibility to do something, but your doing flows out of the faith that God has given you. The self-reliant soul thinks this way. If you are discouraged, you'll have to decide. Will you rely on God who raises the dead, or will you continue to rely on yourself who lives in a body of death? And so as you listen to this webinar, how should you respond? Here's some questions that I want you to think about. Is God calling you to do something, but you don't want to do it? What is that thing? What do you not want to do? How should the foolish gospel guide you? Will you take that step onto the path? What paths do you typically walk down when you are discouraged? I gave you an illustration with Biff and the path that he walked down. That's not a path you want to walk down. That is a self-reliant path. It says, he restores my soul, not Biff restores my soul or I restore my soul. He restores my soul. He is working in you to will and do his good pleasure And so talk about the difference between self-reliance and God-reliance as it applies to your discouragement. Question three, have you developed bad habits in response to challenging things in your life? Binge streaming, as I illustrated with Biff. What are the habits? What is the path you need to start breaking them What path do you need to get on? You need to get on a different path. Let God restore your soul. And as you do that, you will walk in a different path. Question four, talk about a time when you relied on God, even though your human instincts were pulling you in another direction. How did the Lord come through for you? There's an excellent illustration here in Matthew 14, 22 through 33, where Peter was walking on the water. God was asking Peter to get out of a boat and do something to him, do something that was impossible to rely on someone who was more fabulous than he was. Peter did not know the end. Peter couldn't orchestrate or engineer how this thing was going to turn out. He had to trust God. God was the one that was leading him. And out of that faith in God, he took steps that he thought he could never take. If you have questions about this webinar, well, we have millions of words on our website through articles and videos and and podcasts. We also have more help through our free community forums. I would appeal to you to come uh, to our ministry and let us serve you. Watch this webinar. Stop it. Take screenshots. Make copious notes. Talk to a friend. uh, Encourage others to come alongside you. And maybe you need to be the person to come alongside another. But we would love to supplementally help you through the resources that we have, including this webinar. And then for those of you who are able, we do make these resources free. Uh, We are trusting God. It sounds foolish. Uh, we are trusting God. We're putting ourselves in a vulnerable position to just to give away our, our resources. Our store is open. You can come into our sanctification and you can just have all of our resources freely and we give them to you. 
but we can't pay for that store uh, without your help. And if you're able to partner with us, would you do that? Would you donate to our ministry? Would you become a regular financial partner monthly or annually? However you can give, if you would help us to keep our structure up, as long as we can keep the structure up, we will keep the doors open and we will keep these resources free. Thank you so much for listening. It is a joy to be able to serve you We're talking about how to persevere when life turns you upside down. Listen to the audio version as often as you want. Come back to this video. May God bless you as you continue to walk down those paths of righteousness. And as you do that, may you always experience the soul-restorative effect of God's good work in your life. Thanks again for watching. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.